following is for information purposes only and should in no way be construed as investment advice. For today's episode, I am joined by Brendan D'Souza of Dowgate Capital for a conversation with Nadine Raza, the CEO of Aimlisted Microlize. Microlize is a software solutions provider to large transport fleet and logistics companies. Nadim started work at Microlize as a software engineer in the late 1980s, eventually becoming CEO and leading the company through an MBO in 2008 and an IPO last year. In our conversation, Nadine discusses how he and his team have developed a culture of problem solving and how the challenges of the financial crisis and the MBO helped the business develop its software as a service model. He also discusses how technology has evolved and how Microlize utilizes a multidisciplinary team to harness the different technologies to solve the complex problems for their customers how to recruit and retain talent, and how their products can help their customers deal with rising costs and retain their own staff. Nadine gives us a masterclass in how a combination of problem-solving, customer focus, and long-term thinking can create real value. Please enjoy our conversation with the maverick, Nadine Raza. Hi, Nadine. Can you start by telling us a bit about you and your journey? How did you come to join Microlize? So I started life at Microlize in the late 80s. It was my second job after leaving university. I did a maths computing degree at Newcastle University. And I started life as a software engineer. It was something I really deeply enjoyed and loved. And really from there, I grew to running the software development department, uh, which was a team of about six people. That grew to a team of about 30 over a few years. And we then started introducing other technologies and skills in there. So as well as software development, we introduced electronic design, industrial design, 3D CAD modeling, networking, a whole load of RF design and development. So we actually made our own radios for communications. And really, you know, I went on from running a team of software developers to running a complete research and development department. From then, I became a sort of CEO of the engineering part of the group, which involved running manufacturing, sales, marketing, a few other disciplines, and then went on to become technical director for the group in the early 2000s, and then led the management buyout in 2008, after which I became CEO for the group. And that kind of pretty much takes us to where we are today, just continuing to grow the business over that period. It is notable that you seem to have done almost every conceivable job in the company in your tenure in the business. Is that been important for you? I mean, it must feel very much like like your family. Yeah, I mean, there are people within the business that I have been working with for the last 30 years. So, yes, you know, we often joke that we spend more time together than we do with our 
wives or kids, etc. Because you know, we spend eight hours a day working together, often nine, ten hours a day working together. So yes, they are like family. And you know, in terms of the different jobs that I've done, I like a challenge. I've always liked a challenge. I've always enjoyed learning new things and throwing myself into something new and trying to figure it out and trying to make it work and solve problems that came about. And that's really led me into doing all the different things that I've done and learning a whole lot about how businesses operate at grassroots level. You know, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a position today where I can talk to anyone within the business and really talk knowledgeably about their issues and try and help them solve them. Can you help us understand the culture of the business and how important that is? We've done a number of employee surveys, as you do. We're now over 600 people. So, you know, we regularly run surveys to try and understand how employees feel about the work and the environment and the culture of the business. And I'm immensely proud that when we ask the question, what do you like about working for Marklize? You know, it's a standard question that we ask in every survey and we have done for a number of years. The number one answer that we get from our staff is the people. They really enjoy working with other people that are in the business. And I think that's really great that we've managed to hire and retain people that are just great to work with. Of course, like any large family, we have our challenges and we have arguments and we have debates, robust debates often and disagreements. But we know that everyone is trying to really do their best for the business and they're there to try and solve problems every day. That's really good to hear. And I mean, over the period that you've been involved in the business, you know, the technology that you're dealing with has changed dramatically. The opportunities and the requirements of your customers must have changed along with that. Can you just help us understand and trace the evolution of the business and how it has had to change to meet these changing requirements of the customers and the opportunities that the new developing technology presents? I remember the time where we actually introduced email into the business. And I remember the time when we hooked up our first email server onto the internet and set up our domain name and uh, actually started receiving our first few emails because I was the person that actually set that up within the business. So, you know, we've gone through enormous change over the the last 30 years. I mentioned earlier that we developed our own radios. Of course, that was a decade before Wi-Fi. So we were developing radio solutions that operated within a warehouse to allow trucks that were forklift trucks that were moving around the warehouse to communicate effectively with back-end server systems, etc. It does seem amazing that you can survive in the business world today without things like mobile phones and email. I remember doing perfectly well with neither. <laughs> yeah. And of course, the business today relies so heavily on that mobile communication technology that you see, you know, that you have inside your phone. We use the same networks to get data from vehicles, from a whole host of mobile assets all over the world. I remember a time when we first started getting mobile phones in the early 2000s and your mobile phone didn't roam. If you wanted one in the UK and then you went to the US, you had to have a different phone. Whereas now, obviously, you can roam 
in 196 countries without really any issue at all. So all of those things have really developed and grown over the last 20 years. They form a fundamental part of how we operate as a business because we rely on all of those global technologies to be able to do what we do. There was a time when if you shipped some goods out of a warehouse in Leeds and you were shipping goods through to the south of France, this truck would leave the warehouse and then you had no idea what happened to it until a week, two weeks later where somebody might call you or or tell you, yeah, those goods have arrived and I'm happy to accept them. Thank you very much. And I'll send you the payment. Whereas today we can track it minute by minute, you know, second by second along that route and we can get immediate feedback about exactly where those goods are, when they've been delivered, and then generate that invoice within seconds after they've been delivered. So that speed of transaction, that speed of of how quickly logistics moves has changed enormously over the last 20 years. Has the business always focused on fleet or large fleet operators? The business has really since the late 80s and early 90s has been focused on solving big problems. And that generally leads to those interactions with large corporates. We used to joke in the early 90s and 2000s that we were a group of we were a group of engineers. We were a group of people that loved solving problems. Commercial business came secondary. <laughs> we were good at solving problems, not necessarily good at making money out of it. We have software developers, but we have software developers that write server end code. We have a team that specializes in mobile developments. We have a team that works on embedded software that sits on hardware within a vehicle that operates on you know those electronic control units within a vehicle. So a lot of embedded code. We have comm specialists, we have network specialists, we have database specialists, we have data scientists. And that multitude of skills really helps us solve some things that other companies can't do because they just don't have that diverse skill set all under one roof. And so we often do that work for companies like Tesco and, and Sainsbury's and DHL and so on because they require a solution that isn't just a, well, somebody just writes some software. You need a combination of hardware, networking, mobile comms, databases, etc., to make it all work. And we have all of that under one roof, whereas you know they would otherwise have to contract three or four companies to try and solve that problem, which just ends up being very messy and very difficult to manage. So how would you summarize the key benefits today of the Microlize product suite? It's extensive, it's sophisticated, and it will solve a whole host of problems for a large corporate to do with their transport and distribution operations. And more importantly than that, it's also backed up by support and consultancy from people that really know and understand the industry. So we can talk to the likes of Asda or Waitrose in a language that they understand because some of the people that work for us in those consultancy roles are people that used to run those operations. They used to operate some of those warehouses and used to operate some of those distribution centers. So they understand the issues that our customers have and they understand how our solutions help meet those challenges. So is there a dilemma in the business 
between selling a product and trying to solve a specific bespoke problem in terms of you're not necessarily just making something once and selling it many times, but you're also tailoring that product for the specific purposes of that one customer. Does that present a dilemma in the business in what you do? Absolutely. And it always has done because we have some really, really skilled people and they like a challenge. And we always have to be conscious of the fact that you know, a customer will come along and give us a problem and we will find a solution to it. Absolutely, we will find a solution to it. In fact, we'll find 10 solutions to it. But the issue is, is it actually worth solving from a business perspective? That is always a dilemma. And it's something that we always struggle with and we continue to struggle with. And you know, we have a number of people in our product. We introduced product managers and product owners whose job it is to reflect on those things and go, yeah, actually, we can solve that problem, but actually, should we? Is it actually going to generate shareholder value? Is it going to make money? Is it actually going to be generic across a whole industry? Or are we just actually solving a specific problem for this customer? Would we be better off trying to solve a more generic problem that's going to help 100 customers as opposed to just this one? The reverse of that is that if all you've got is a product, a one-size-fits-all, you're not going to shoehorn sophisticated customers into buying your one-size-fits-all solution. Absolutely. And there is always a balance because our customers are also looking for that competitive edge against their competitors. So they will want something that is different. They will want you to be innovative and do something for them that you haven't done for anyone else because that enables them to have a competitive edge. Of course, in time, everyone will want that solution, but they'll want it first and they'll want to be the first to have it and to be able to deploy it and gain the benefits from it. That sort of leads on to the sort of next question I had, which was around IP and how you think about IP. What degree of IP do you have in your products and how do you protect that IP? I guess there's two formats for that, really. One is we do have a number of patents and we have a number of patents that we've developed ourselves. There's a couple of patents that we've actually bought from third parties because we saw particular value in those. And so that gives you some level of protection. But inherently, we would say most of our IP lies within the way that we do things, the the actual software that we have, the algorithms that are used within that software, the actual code base that's there, and also some of the processes that we use to solve some of those problems. That's really the IP. But I guess in another way, it's actually the people. (laughs) There's a lot of inherent skill and retained knowledge within those people that actually makes the company who it is. You've built up, particularly in the UK, what seems to be a very dominant market position in providing technology solutions for large fleet operators. How do you think about preserving that position? And can you just give us a bit of insight into the competitive dynamics for the market that you're serving today? You have to continually work hard to maintain that position and you never take your customers for granted. So we are constantly talking to our customers, trying to understand what their next set of challenges are, the things that are keeping them awake at night, and looking at how we can help them 
solve those problems or if we should solve those problems and how we can deliver benefits to them. And a lot of that is through innovation. You know, we spend an enormous amount of money every year on creating new products, creating new solutions that we can sell into our existing customer base. So you've got a mix of software, hardware and services revenue. Can you just help us understand the drivers for each of those? What are the complexities involved in managing a business that has got different forms of revenue stream like this? We actually think of ourselves as a software business. You know, we are a SaaS based software business. All the other things that we do are there to enable us to sell our software services. So we design and we manufacture hardware, but that's really there because that enables us to get data from all of these mobile assets that then feeds into running all of our software. We sell a lot of our own hardware, but we're not precious about that. We support a number of other third-party hardware as well. And over time, we see that our position will shift in that a lot of vehicles and a lot of trucks and cars and, and other equipment are coming along with connectivity solutions already built in. And there's no point in having another hardware device in there if you can use what's already in there. The consultancy side of things, we found a number of years ago that our customers were buying our software, but then not really getting the maximum benefit out of it. And we felt, well, actually, this is going to be detrimental to us longer term, because if customers aren't getting the benefit and the value from buying our software, why would they want to stick with us? Why would they not go somewhere else? So we actually created a team within Marklise called our Benefits Realization Team, whose job it was to go and talk to our customers and really understand how they were using our software and solutions and help them drive more value from them. You mentioned earlier that you led Microlize through an MBO in 2008 and more recently last year, an IPO. For most businesses, each one would be a sort of once-in-a-lifetime event, but you've done two of them. How would you compare and contrast these events and their significance for the business? The MBO was really a non-event. Nothing changed as far as our staff were concerned or our customers. Obviously, we noticed because we were suddenly in debt uh, personally. <laughs> it and, mattered. Uh, and, and it mattered a whole lot more to us. And did it change the way you operated the business, thought about the business as a team or seemingly not? I'm sure it did to some degree because I think we were far more conscious about what we had to lose if we weren't successful. Because it's the mind, doesn't it? It does focus the mind. And of course, you know, from a timing perspective, we didn't do it at a great time because we did it at the beginning of April in 2008. And if you think back to that, it was really the beginning of the financial crisis and the credit crunch and, and so on. And so actually, life became quite difficult for us for the next two years as we tried to run the business through what became a very financially challenging environment, not just for us, but also for our customers. Of course. Well, you could argue you haven't actually timed your IPO that well either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to be too negative, but no, uh, no it's an absolutely fair criticism. But uh, well, no, not a criticism, just an observation. <laughs> we have a saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely, drive by that totally. Yeah, and I think looking back on it, 
it was fair to say that we had some very tough and challenging periods, you know, from 2008 to sort of through to 2010, 2011. But it made us much better as a management team. It made us better as a business and really made us far better as a culture and organization as well. How did that manifest itself? Is that making more responsive to your customers? Does it make you closer to your staff? Is it just a mixture of a whole load of different things? Is there anything you could put your finger on and said, actually, we, as a result, we've done this better? I think one of the key things there was the fact that at that point in 2008, we were not a SaaS business. Not much was though, was it? <laughs> well, there was one or two of our competitors that were SaaS businesses and we were looking at them going, that's a strange business model, isn't it? Why are they selling it? They're not getting any money up front. They're getting their money over a longer period of time. Why are they doing that as opposed to what we were doing, which was, okay, you bought a software license. Great. You got all this money up front. Then they paid a traditional annual maintenance fee and so on. And you went, okay, why should we change from this model to to an alternative model? And then Obviously, through that financial crisis, you came to realize, actually, there's a stability question here. You know, if you had that stability of having this recurring revenue that covered all of your overheads, then actually you can weather these storms without too much of a problem. Now, as it happens, some of our competitors that had that SaaS model were actually doing that SaaS model very badly because what they were doing was they were lease financing all of their hardware. And obviously, through the credit crunch, all of that lease financing disappeared. So they ended up being in significant trouble over that period, far more trouble than we were in. Nadim, it seems from our chat so far that the company and yourself are very long-term in the way you think. Is that fair to say? And I'm just wondering, when you think of products, when you think of strategies, things like this, do you have like a Jeff Bezos kind of like five or seven-year outlook when you're planning for you know, how things are going to shape up? So the first part to your question in terms of, yes, we do have a long-term view on how things operate. Obviously, we're now a, a listed business as a PLC, so we do have to report more frequently than that. Do we plan five years in advance? The short answer is probably not, really. We have a view of what's going on in the world and where we think the market and our customers and technology and the environment are going over the next five years, but we tend only really to plan one or two years in detail when we talk about financial planning, etc. We tend to look at well, what's going on in the next year and then the year after that, because there's just so many things that can come along and, and change along the way. I mean, I don't think I would have envisaged Russia going into Ukraine and the chaos that that's caused at Christmas, even three or four months ago. Our customers are shifting away from diesel-powered vehicles. They're shifting to EVs in the, in the smaller fleets. They're shifting to gas-powered vehicles in the larger vehicle sectors. We know that's happening. We know that connectivity within vehicles and the way that manufacturers are putting devices into vehicles to provide that connectivity, that's happening. And we know that more of that is coming along. We know that driver assistance aids, both for security and both for health and safety, are expanding and are coming along. And we know that there's more of those that are going to be appearing in vehicles over the coming years. So all of these macro trends we're very aware of, and we cater for those in some of our roadmaps and our planning for future years. But at a detailed level, 
it's really only the next year, the next two years we worry about. What are your thoughts on full automation of the logistics space? I think we're far away from that, is the simple answer. What we'll see is that there will be more automation on motorways and those sort of long-haul type activities. And I don't think you're going to get rid of the driver. There's a long way before we start eliminating drivers out of those sorts of environments because legislation is always one or two, three years behind actual technology. And so we're always going to have drivers there for quite some time. But it's far easier to automate driving and providing more driver assistance features on motorways than it is in urban environments. Most humans have difficulty driving in, in some of our inner city roads, etc., because you know the layouts are just awful. There's just too much road furniture around, whether you're talking about traffic lights, zebra lights, signage, all of those things, too many people going around, too many roadworks. We're just so far away from providing autonomous vehicles in those urban environments at this stage. There is a view that actually our urban environments are going to have to change to allow for automated vehicles, to try and make that environment easier for automated vehicles to operate in. But I can't imagine autonomous vehicles in a busy London roads for quite some time. At what point does that driver assistance and the technology surrounding the driver become a concern? Like any technology, it has the ability to be misused. And we are very specific to our customers in terms of saying to them, look, there's a way that you could implement this technology that will work and it will drive you lots of value and benefit. And there's a way that you can implement this that will blow your foot off because you'll just do it wrong as a, from a PR perspective. And that's all about if you can put the technology in and explain to drivers how it's a benefit to them and how it's going to help them. And you can put in rewards and benefit schemes that actually allow them to earn more and help drive your savings, then it's a win-win solution and everybody wins and everybody's happy and, and you know adoption is great. If you try and just use the technology as a deterrent, as a way of beating up drivers for not doing a good job, then you will fail. And we have lots of examples of customers that have done it one way and been really successful and others that have adopted the other approach and found that it just created so many barriers and so much discontent within their workforce that uh, it was just unusable. And the first part of that is absolutely true. This technology can absolutely help drivers with their daily lives and it can actually help them become better drivers. It can help their employer save a lot of money and if they can be part of that reward scheme and get some of that money back in their pockets, everybody wins, our customers and their drivers. I guess more recently, the major problem facing your customers is going to be the cost of running their fleets with the price of oil rocketing in the last few weeks. Can you just, I mean, your software solutions can help offset higher fuel costs. Can you just sort of talk us through that and how more generally, I guess, is Microlize being impacted by the onset of more general cost inflation? It's something that's really on the minds of a lot of our customers. The way that we help 
with fuel and trying to reduce the amount of fuel that they're using, making them more fuel efficient, it's really twofold. We have a planning and optimization product suite. Now, product optimization suite helps to optimize that workflow so that you are delivering the maximum number of orders and goods with the least number of vehicles, least number of drivers, and traveling the shortest amount of distance, and thereby using the least amount of fuel. So firstly, if you are running a large fleet, putting that through an optimization engine that can really focus down on how to deliver all of those goods with the least number of vehicles and drivers and mileage, that's a clear win solution. And you can make a big impact. You know, we're talking anywhere between four and 12, 15% benefits that you can have in doing that and running that kind of optimization compared to just either trying to do it by hand or just generally doing a general kind of milk round type solution that a lot of our customers do. The second thing is that using our telematics software, we can really help drivers drive vehicles far more efficiently. And that's all about making sure they operate it at an optimal speed, looking at how they accelerate, looking at how they brake, looking at how they use cruise control, using the engine brake correctly, a variety of things that make driving it more efficient. And again, it's not untypical to see somewhere between 4 and 8% fuel savings by driving a truck really well. And when you're talking about... 10,000 drivers, you will get a distribution curve of drivers who are really, really bad to drivers who are really, really good and a lot of people that are sitting in the middle that are average. And if you can move some of that average people or some of the people in the lower grades up, even one grade, you know, our software measures them on an A to G grade. If you just move them up by one grade, you can see significant fuel savings that will absolutely be noticeable on the bottom line. Nadim, how have you found it to, one, recruit technical staff, and the other part is just retain the technical staff you have within your team currently? Yeah, it's a challenge, particularly at the moment. Technical staff are hard to come by. Good technical staff are even harder to come by. And that's really, I think, a consequence of COVID over the last couple of years, it's made everybody realize that actually you don't have to have technical staff in the office. You can have them working from home 90% of the time, or in some cases, 100% of the time, and they work just as efficiently, if not more efficiently. And that means that companies that used to recruit people in London and pay London wages can now recruit nationally and still pay London wages. And that's really meant that all of those salaries have shot up for those highly skilled technical people throughout the country. And not just in the country, but also internationally, we see the same thing happening in India, where there is significant wage inflation for technical roles. So it's a challenge. It has always been a challenge for us. One of the things that we did about three years ago was that we actually created our own academy where we recruited people, graduates straight out of university, and actually put them through a six to nine month boot camp where we trained them 
in the ways that we work and train them the best practices and really brought their skills up from the kind of technologies that they were used to and operate with university, which tends to be three or four years behind industry norms, and brought them into what was best practice within the industry. Earlier in our conversation, you were talking about employee satisfaction surveys that you conduct within the firm. I was just wondering that how important are things like Glassdoor, on which uh, MicroLays and yourself are very highly rated, as well as things like rankings, like the Times Best Employers to Work For? How important is this for your business? I think it's really important when you're recruiting. So people coming into the business will look at Glassdoor. They'll look at a number of other reviews before they decide to accept your offer. So from that perspective, it's really important. But I think once they're in the business and they start working for you, then their day-to-day experiences will outweigh everything else. And what you have to do is make sure that that employee experience that they get from first making contact, going through the interview process, being made an offer, accepting the offer, joining, going through their probationary term, all of those things are positive experiences as well. And we look at that entire process of onboarding all the way through to people being in the business for five, six months and making sure that that is a positive experience. With regards to innovation, it's clear that the current avatar of the business is very different from what it was five or 10 or you know, whatever number of years back. As far as innovation goes, how do you make sure you're investing in R&D? Do you have a target, like a percentage of revenue? How does that work? I guess notionally, we know that we are spending a proportion of our revenue in R&D. And as we grow as a business, that proportion will grow alongside it. So notionally, that's how we look at things. But I don't think we put any hard and fast rules or anything specific into our budgets in relation to that. Because really, we decide and work upon a case-by-case basis. We know at the moment that we have enormous amounts of data that we collect from our mobile assets We think we can drive more value from all of that data than we have been doing. We've done some pilot projects which have been successful. But that's led us to then say, okay, right, we're going to invest a whole load of money and a load of time and people and resources into creating some data platforms that allow us to exploit that data much more easily going forward. that, That was a decision you know, it's an investment decision that we took last year. It was taken at a kind of local level within the business. And, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of pounds that we're going to invest and in, in millions if you consider all the people and everything else that's going to go alongside that. But that's just a one-off decision that we did based on where we think the world is going and where we think we can exploit some of our data assets that we have. We don't really look at a hard, fast rule that says we will invest X amount of our revenue and we'll find some projects that allow us to spend that money. That's not how we operate. Is this due to your background in the company? You came in as a software developer, as you said, and then you ended up heading up R&D before you went on to other roles. Do you think that your personal experience in these fields has just kind of informed how you run the business? Yeah. I mean, I think, as I said, 20 years ago, 
I would have looked at things as being an engineering challenge. It's a, oh, that's an interesting problem. How do I solve that? And really going through the MBO and the financial crisis, it really focused the mind into, okay, yeah, it's an engineering challenge, but can we make any money out of solving that problem? And so these days, it's more about, okay, these are the problems that are being created in the world due to a variety of changes and macroeconomic events that are going on. Are they worth solving? If we solve those, can we make money out of it? And therefore, should we invest in something to do that? And we consider investment cases in a, in a multitude of different ways. There are investment cases for winning new business that we think that we can create a new product or a new service that we can sell out there. And there are investment cases that are internally driven. So, okay, if we do this, it means that actually we can do this process more efficiently, which will save us money. So there's an investment case there to spend some money to improve something that over the long term will save us a whole load of money and cut out a whole load of costs. But everything that we do from an R&D perspective has to have some kind of investment case. There has to be some return on why you're doing it, whether it's a cost saving or generating new revenue. Talking about the longer term growth of the business, Nadeem, you've we've talked about your strong domestic market position, but you've also successfully grown the business internationally. How do you see the geographical mix of the business taking shape over the longer term? And I guess related to that, how big can Microlize be? Well, we definitely have international growth ambitions. We'll continue to grow in the UK, but there is a fixed market at size there. There are about 450,000 trucks in the UK. It's been 450,000 for the last two decades. It's not grown. It's not changed much in that form. They've become a lot more efficient, but the volume is still that volume. And therefore, we're not going to grow beyond that in terms of numbers of vehicles. We may grow in terms of introducing more modules and so on that we can sell on to each of those vehicles, but there's a finite limit into that market space. But internationally, there are millions of vehicles across lots and lots of countries that all have similar problems to the types of problems that we solve in the UK. And therefore, we look at that and go, well, actually, we should be able to go and solve those problems in Australia, Europe, North America, etc. They are subtly different. And one of the things that we've learned over the last few years is that there's this great European common market that is not common. <laughs> there are lots of things that, although a lot of legislation is the same, it's actually subtly different in different parts. And there are additions and different ways of doing things. And of course, language barriers. But there's a whole variety of local changes that you have to make to your software to really satisfy customers in each of those regions. And hence why you know, we're spending a lot of time over the last couple of years looking at France and Australia. You know, We will be doing the same thing to expand further in Europe, in Germany, Poland, Netherlands, etc. But it takes time. And one of the other things that we learned very quickly was that French customers want to buy from French salespeople, French consultants, French project managers. And the same is true in Germany and the same is true in Australia, etc. So all of the places where we go, we have to build that local group of like-minded 
people that can adopt our culture from the UK and can go and help those customers in those regions. And hence why you know, we're investing heavily in France and Australia, because those are the markets that we're already in, to try and expand in those areas. And we've got great pipeline and we've won some great business so far. And we hope that now that COVID restrictions have been lifted in those regions, we're looking forward to some really good expansion of our businesses in both of those countries. I get the impression that our logistics and distribution industries in the UK are relatively sophisticated compared with some of the other countries you might be moving into. A, is that true? And if so, does that enable you to piggyback on the back of that level of sophistication? It's absolutely true. We have a lot of things going on in a very small geography with a very bad road network. And those sorts of things mean that you have to be efficient. And we are in the UK, you know, our logistics and transport operations are some of the best in the world because we have to be, because there's just so many other problems that they have to contend with. So when you go to places like France and the Netherlands and and some of those other regions, it's a lot easier. They've not got the same issues today and they are generally wowed by the capabilities of our software because it can do so much more than they ever thought that they needed. But once they realize, actually, I can do this today and actually the software is already there for me to then get more efficient by doing this tomorrow, etc. They really buy into that story and buy into that roadmap. So, you know, we're very confident in our capabilities and what we can do to improve those supply chains and distribution networks in other countries because we've got a very good record of doing that here and we think a lot of the same problems exist worldwide that we can go and help and solve. On the subject of longer-term thinking, at the time of the IPO, you were and are the largest shareholder in Microlize and you didn't sell any shares at the IPO. And I think, in fact, I believe it's right, you subsequently bought more shares I mean, that's just an amazing vote of confidence in the business, which marks you out from the norm. But it also speaks to Brendan's point about long-term thinking, taking a long-term view. You've been in the business a long time. You seem to be taking a very long-term view of the business and its prospects. My attitude towards it is that I don't need the money. I don't need to go out and buy a yacht anywhere or anything like that. So, There's a few for sale apparently around the world at the moment. I believe so, yeah. Uh, some quite large ones uh, as well, having recently been confiscated. Not that I'm trying to talk you out of your strategy, but uh, just... Uh... <laughs> I don't have any requirements for going off and doing those sorts of things. So hence, my money is in various investments. And obviously, a large proportion of that is in Microlize because I believe it to be a great investment. I believe that you know I can grow that business and drive that value far higher than what it is today. And so, logically, you know, it didn't make any sense for me to sell those shares and invest it somewhere else because I think it's a good investment where it is. And hence, I, I didn't bother selling any shares and, in fact, bought some more because... You know, the share price was at a point where I said, well, actually, it's far too low compared to what I think it's worth. And hence, you know, I had some spare capital. So I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll invest it, buy some more shares within the business. So obviously, at some point, I will retire. At some point, I will exit. I don't know when that is. 
And my view has always been that I need to be doing things. I need to be solving problems. I need to be making myself useful and providing value to the rest of the team and to Mark Lies as a business. And when that's no longer the case, then I won't be there. So in your long tenure at Microlize, your long journey to where we are today, what have you changed your mind about? Do you view the world differently? I think that over the last 20 years, I've come to appreciate how interconnected things are compared to where I was in my head 20 years ago. You know, in 20 years ago, it was about, okay, what are we doing with this customer in this geography? in this industry sector and it was very much a very isolated view of the world whereas i now look at things and go actually i can see how things happening in russia and ukraine are impacting stuff that we do in india stuff that we do in north america how covid had an impact in different parts of the world because we get data you know we have data showing how vehicles are being operated, how construction equipment is being used. When there's an issue in Hong Kong or in Shenzhen, how that's then going to impact some of our customers, not just us, but some of our customers and some of the things that they're doing. So Evergreen getting stuck in the Suez Canal, the ripple effects that that caused with our OEM customers, we were very aware of because we had visibility of some of those supply chain activities that were involved. So, yeah, that view of how we are all connected in this global world is something that's becoming more and more evident as I grow older. As you were talking, I was thinking I need to do a Google trend search of supply chain disruption or just supply chain. I mean, it's a key part of your business. I mean, it's something you've lived and breathed for 20, 30 years, but it's one of those terms that is now coming to everyday use because it's affecting us all, whether it's tragedy in Ukraine or whether it's the pandemic shutdown. We are, as you say, we're all very interconnected and it's, you know, unfortunately, when it doesn't work, it becomes familiar to us all. Yeah. You know, we can see somebody going into a supermarket and finding that they don't have fresh groceries, fresh produce on the shelf. And it's a disappointment. It's something that they may not be happy about. But we actually see all of the things that go behind that. We can see there was a problem with orders and deliveries from the warehouse to that supermarket. We can see the inbound logistics going into that warehouse and issues that happened on that a few days before that and so on. So we're in a, I guess, in some ways, a very privileged position in that we have so much data from around the world that we can see how those supply chains are being impacted and what's going on. And that helped us last year when we talked about the fuel crisis. There was a number of our investors that asked us about, okay, so there's a fuel crisis in the petrol pumps. How much of a problem is this? You know, Is this going to go on for weeks? Is it going to go on for months? And because we actually have our technology on about 80% of the fuel delivery trucks in the UK, we were able to say, look, this is what's going on. We think this is only going to be a short-term issue. It's going to get better in the next few days and two weeks' time. It's not really going to be an issue at all. And we were absolutely right with our predictions. So having that visibility gives you that amazing insight into what's going on in the world. And it's just 
so, so interesting about how all of these different things and different industries are interconnected and how things that happen in one place have an impact somewhere else that you wouldn't entirely expect. Well, it really points to the value that you have in that data. Nadim, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much for taking the trouble to talk to us. Really enjoyed the conversation. We'll follow your progress with great interest and hopefully sometime in the future we can have a further catch up. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of In the Company of Mavericks, please subscribe at our website, inthecompanyofmavericks.com, where we would appreciate your feedback and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. 